0: Written by Henry L. Menken and published in 1905, this book explores the famed playwright and political activist George Bernard Shaw. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Firstly, I'd like to share some exciting news with the listeners of this podcast. My partner and I have welcomed our new daughter into the world just this week, which is why I was unable to put up an episode last week. Her and her mother are doing extremely well. A massive thank you to the listeners who have recently become new supporters on Patreon. The new patrons that I would like to send thanks to are Jennifer Strong, Laura Lee Williams, and Chuck Lavazzi. Your monthly financial contributions are an amazing compliment, and also help me to bring out more episodes to those who need it. Thank you also to Pamela Nelson for your lovely message through the website. And thank you to Deb Pogue for your kind message on Facebook. Finally, I'd like to send a thank you to all Patreons and sponsors who support the show financially with a monthly contribution, whether it's $2 or $5. Your support allows me to bring out more episodes to those who need them. If you would like to sponsor the show because the podcast helps you fall asleep, please visit boyytosleep.com. If you find the podcast beneficial, I have a special favor to ask. Please share the podcast with a friend who may need a good night's rest. It would also be amazing if you could please leave a review and comment in iTunes, or leave the show a rating in Spotify. And if you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. George Bernard Shaw, His Plays, by Henry L. Mencken Preface This is a little handbook for the reading tables of Americans interested enough in the drama of the day to have some curiosity regarding the plays of George Bernard Shaw but too busy to give them careful personal study or to read the vast mass of reviews, magazine articles, letters to the editor newspaper paragraphs and reports of debates that dealt with them. Every habitual writer, now before the public, from William Archer and James Hewnker, to Vox Populi and an old subscriber, has had his say about Shaw. In the pages following, there is no attempt to formulate a new theory, of his purposes or a novel interpretation of his philosophies. Instead, the object of this modest book is to bring all of the Shaw commentators together upon the common ground of admitted fact, to exhibit the Shaw plays as dramas rather than transcendental treatises and to describe their plots characters, and general plans, simply and calmly, and without reading into them anything invisible to the naked eye. The order in which the plays are considered is not the chronological one, and some readers may think that this is not the logical one inasmuch as an exposition of the reasons that urged its adoption would waste a great deal of space. The point will not be argued. The brief biography of The Dramatist is based upon the most accurate available eulogies, denunciations, reminiscences, and manuscripts. So too the historical data regarding the plays and other publications. The reputation of Mr. Shaw as a playwright has so far exceeded his renown as a novelist, a socialist, a cart-tail orator, a journeyman reformer, a vegetarian, and a critic of literature and the arts. That his novels and other minor works have been noticed but briefly. But this is not to be taken as evidence that they do not merit acquaintance. Even the worst of Shaw is well worth study. A century is a mere clock tick in eternity, but measured by human events it is a hundred long years. Napoleon Bonaparte, born in seventeen sixty eight, became an officer of artillery and grave digger for an epoch. Born in eighteen sixty eight, he might have become a journeyman genius of the boulevards, a Franco Yankee trust magnate, or the democratic boss of Kansas City. And so, contrariwise, George Bernard Shaw, born in 1756 instead of 1856, might have become a gold stick in waiting at the court of St. James or Archbishop of Canterbury. The accident that made him what he is was one of time. He saw the light after instead of before Charles Darwin. Darwin is dead now. And the public that reads the newspapers remembers him only as the person who first publicly noted the fact that men look a great deal like monkeys. But his soul goes marching on. Thomas Huxley and Herbert Spencer, like a new ham and a new shem, spent their lives seeing to that. From him through Huxley, we have Apprentices, the Seedless Orange, and our affable indifference to hell. Through Spencer, in like manner, we have Nietzsche, Suderman, Hauptmann, and Ibsen, our annual carnivals of catechetical revision, the Stampede for Church Union, and the aforesaid George Bernard Shaw. Each and all of these men and things, it is true, might have appeared if Darwin were yet unborn. Ibsen might have written a doll's house, and a rash synod or two might have turned impertinent searchlights upon the doctrine of infant damnation. It is possible, certainly, but it is supremely, colossally, and overwhelmingly improbable. Why? Simply because, before Darwin gave the world the origin of species, the fight against orthodoxy, custom, and authority was perennially and necessarily a losing one. On the side note of the defense were ignorance, antiquity, Piety, organization and respectability, 12-inch wire wound, rapid guns, all of them. In the hands of the scattered, half-hearted, unorganized attacking parties, there were but two weapons, the blowpipe of impious doubt and the bludgeon of sacrilege. Neither unsupported, was very effective. Voltaire, who tried both, scared the defenders a bit, and for a while, there was a great pother and scurrying about. But when the smoke cleared away, the walls were just as strong as before, and the drawbridge was still up. One had to believe or be damned, There was no compromise and no middle ground. And so, when Darwin bobbed up, armed with a new fangled dynamite gun that hurled shells charged with a new shrapnel, facts, the defenders laughed at the novel weapon and looked forward to slaying its bearer. Spencer, because he ventured to question Genesis, lost his best friend, Huxley, for an incautious utterance was barred from the University of Oxford. And then, of a sudden, there was a deafening roar and a blinding flash, and down went the walls. Ramparts of authority that had resisted doubts fell like hedgerows before facts, and there began an intellectual reign of terror that swept like a whirlwind through Europe, America, Asia, Africa, and Oceania. For 6,000 years it had been necessary in defending a doctrine to show only that it was respectable or sacred. Since 1859 it has been needful to prove its truth. It will take the perspective of centuries to reveal to us the exact mates and bounds of Darwin's influence. He himself probably gave no or little thought to that. His own business in life was the investigation of biological phenomena, and he was too busy at that to take an interest in politics or ethics. But his new method of assailing tradition appealed to men laboring in far distant vineyards, and soon there was in progress a grand assault at arms that left orthodoxy and custom dying on the field. Huxley led the physicians and Spencer the metaphysicians. Every time the former overturned an old theory of matter, The latter pricked an old maxim of ethics, and so the search for the ultimate verities, which had been a pariah hiding in cellars, like anarchism or polygamy, became the spirit of the times. Whenever custom or tradition reared one of its Hydra heads, there was a champion ready to strike it down. The practical result of this was that seekers after the truth growing bold with success began attacking virtues as well as vices and herein you will find the fundamental differences between the philosophers before Darwin and those after him. The spectator in the teens of the 18th century invade against martial infidelity, and amusement counted among the scarlet sins since the days of Moses. Ibsen, a century and a half later, asked if there might not be evil too, in unreasoning fidelity. If you pursue this little inquiry to its close, you will observe that George Bernard Shaw in nearly all of his plays and novels, follows Ibsen rather than Addison. Sometimes he lends his ear to one of the two classes of pioneers he mentions, in the quintessence of Ibsen, and sometimes to the other, but is always to the pioneers. Either he is exhibiting a virtue as a vice in disguise, or exhibiting a vice as a virtue in vice's clothing. In this fact lies the excuse for considering him a world figure. He stands in a sense as an embodiment of the Weltgeist, which is a word invented by the Germans to designate world spirit or tendency of the times. Popular opinion, and himself to the contrary notwithstanding, sure is not a mere preacher. The function of the dramatist is not that of the village pastor. He has no need to exhort, nor to call upon his hearers to come to the mourner's bench. All the world expects him to do is to picture human life as he sees it, as accurately and effectively as he can. Like the artist in color, form or tone, his business is with impressions. A man painting an alpine scene endeavors to produce, not a mere record of each rock and tree, but an impression upon the observer like that he would experience were he to stand in the artist's place and look upon the snow-capped crags. In music, it is the same. Beethoven set out, with malady and harmony, to arouse the emotions that stir us upon pondering the triumphs of a great conqueror, hence the Eroica Symphony, Likewise with curves and color, Millet tried to awaken the soft content that falls upon us when we gaze across the fields at eventide and hear the distant vesper bell, and we have the angulus. The purpose of the dramatist is identical. If he shows us a drunken man on the stage it is because he wants us to experience the disgust or amusement. He concerns himself, in brief, with things as he sees them. The preacher deals with things as he thinks they ought to be. Sometimes the line of demarcation between the two purposes may be but dimly seen, but it is there all the same. If a play has what is known as a moral, it is the audience and not the playwright that formulates and voices it. A sermon without an obvious moral, well rubbed in, would be no sermon at all. And if so, if we divest ourselves of the idea that Shaw is trying to preach some rock-ribbed doctrine in each of his plays, Instead of merely setting forth human events as he sees them, we may find his dramas much easier of comprehension. True enough, in his prefaces and stage directions, he delivers himself of many wise sores and elaborate theories. But upon the stage, fortunately prefaces and stage directions are no longer read to audiences. As they were in Shakespeare's time and so, if they are ever to discharge their natural functions, the shore dramas must stand as simple plays. Some of them, à la decay, bear this test rather badly. Others, such as Mrs. Warren's Profession, and Candida bear it supremely well. It is the dramatist's business then to record the facts of life as he sees them, that philosophers and moralists, by which is meant the public in meditative mood, may deduce therefrom new rules of human conduct, or observe and analyze old rules as they are exhibited in the light of practice. That the average playwright does not always do so with absolute accuracy is due to the fact that he is merely a human being. No two men see the same thing in exactly the same way and there are no fixed standards whereby we may decide whether one or the other or neither is right. Herein We find the element of individual colour, which makes one man's play differ from another man's, just as one artist's picture of a stretch of beach would differ from another's. A romanticist essaying to draw a soldier gave the world Don César de Bazan. George Bernard Shaw had the same task, Produced Captain Blunchley, Don Caesar is an idealist and a hero. Blunchley is a sort of redefined day labourer, bent upon earning his pay at the least possible expenditure of blood and perspiration. Inasmuch as no mere man, not even the soldier under analysis himself, could ever hope to pry into a fighting man's mind and define and label his innermost shadows of thought and motive with absolute accuracy. There is no reason why we should hold Don Caesar to be a more natural figure than Captain Bluntschli. All that we can demand of a dramatist is that he make his creation consistent and logical and as far as he can see it, true. If we examine Blanchly, we will find that he answers these requirements. There may be a good deal of Shaw in him, but there is also some of Kitchener and more of Tommy Aitkins. This is one of the chief things to remember in studying the characters in the Shaw plays, Some of them are not obvious types, but a little inspection will show that most of them are old friends, simply viewed from a new angle. This personal angle is the possession that makes one dramatist differ from all others. Sarcy, the great French critic, has shown us that the essence of dramatic action is conflict, Every principal character in a play must have a complement, or as it is commonly expressed, a foil. In the most primitive type of melodrama, there is a villain to battle with the hero, and a comic servant to stand in contrast with the tearful heroine. As we go up the scale, the types are less strongly marked, but in every play that, in the true sense, is dramatic. There is this same balancing of characters and action. Comic scenes are contrasted with serious ones, and for every Hamlet, you will find a gravedigger. In the dramas of George Bernard Shaw, which deal almost wholly with the current conflict between orthodoxy and heterodoxy, It is but natural that the characters should fall broadly into two general classes. The ordinary folks who represent the great majority and the iconoclasts or idol smashers. Darwin made this war between the faithful and the scoffers, the chief concern of the time, and the sham smashing that is now going on in all the fields of human inquiry, might be compared to the Crusades that engrossed the world in the Middle Ages. Everyone, consciously or unconsciously, is more or less directly engaged in it. And so, when Shaw chooses conspicuous fighters in this war, as the chief characters of his plays... He is but demonstrating his comprehension of human nature as it is manifested today. In Man and Superman, for instance, he makes John Tanner, the chief personage of the drama, a rabid adherent of certain very advanced theories in social philosophy. And to accentuate these theories and contrast them strongly, with more the old fashioned ideas of the majority of persons. He places Tanner among men and women who belong to this majority. The effect of this is that the old notions and the new orthodoxy and heterodoxy are brought sharply face to face and there is much opportunity for what theatre goers call scenes i.e. clashes of purpose and will. In all of the Shaw plays, including even the farces, though here to a less degree, this conflict between the worshippers of old idols and the iconoclasts, or idol smashers, is the author's chief concern. In The Devil's Disciple, he puts the scene back a century and a half, because he wants to exhibit his hero's doings against a background of particularly rigid and uncompromising orthodoxy. And the world has moved so fast since Darwin's time that such orthodoxy scarcely exists today. Were it pictured as actually so existing, the public would think the picture false, and the playwright would fail in the first business of a maker of plays, which is to give an air of reality to its creations. So, Dick Dudgeon in The Devil's Disciple is made a contemporary of George Washington, and the tradition against which he struggles seems fairly real. In each of the Shaw plays, You'll find a sham smasher like Dick. In Mrs. Warren's profession, there are three of them. Mrs. Warren herself, her daughter Vivie, and Frank Gardner. In You Can Never Tell, there are the Clandons. In Arms and the Man, there is Bluntsley, And in Man and Superman, there are John Tanner and Mendoza, the brigand chief who appears in the house scene as the devil. In Candida and certain other of the plays, it is somewhat difficult to label each character distinctly because there is less definition in the outlines and the people of the play are first on one side and then on the other, much after the fashion of people in real life. But in all of the sure plays, the necessary conflict is essentially one between old notions of conduct and new ones. Dramatists of other days, before the world became engaged in its crusade against error and sham, depicted battles of other sorts. In Hamlet, Shakespeare showed the prince in conflict with himself, and in The Merchant of Venice, he showed Shylock combating Antonio, or in other words, the ideals of the Jew at strife with Christian ideals of charity and mercy. Of late, the most important plays have much resembled those of Shaw. Ibsen, except in his early poetical dramas, deals chiefly with the war between new schemes of human happiness and old rules of conduct. Nora Helmer fights the ancient idea that a married woman should love, honour and obey her husband no matter what the provocation to do otherwise just as Mrs. Warren defies the mandate that a woman should preserve her virtue no matter how much she may suffer thereby. Sutterman in Magda shows his heroine in revolt against the patriarchal German doctrine that a father's authority over his children is without limit. and Hauptmann, another German of rare talents, depicts his chief characters in similar situations. Shaw is frankly a disciple of Ibsen, but he is far more than a mere imitator. In some things indeed, such for instance, as infertility of wit and invention, he very greatly exceeds the Norwegian. As long as a dramatist is faithful to his task of depicting human life as he sees it, it is of small consequence whether the victory, in the dramatist conflict, goes to one side or the other. In Pioneer's play, The Second, Mrs. Tanqueray, the heroine loses her battle with convention and her life pays the forfeit. In Ibsen's Ghosts, the contest ends with the destruction of all concerned. In Hortman's Freundest, there is no conclusion at all, and in Sutterman's Jonas orthodox virtue triumphs. The dramatist, properly speaking, is not concerned about the outcome of the struggle. All he is required to do is to draw the two sides accurately and understandingly, and to show the conflict naturally. In other words, it is not his business to decide the matter for his audience, but to make those who see his play think it out for themselves. Here he says, as it were, I have set down certain human transactions and depicted certain human beings brought face to face with definite conditions and I have tried to show them meeting these conditions as persons of their sort would meet them in real life. I have endeavoured in brief to exhibit a scene from life as real people live it. Doubtless, there are lessons to be learned from this scene. Lessons that may benefit real men and women if they are ever confronted with the conditions I have described. It is for you, my friends, to work out these lessons for yourselves, each according to his ideas of right and wrong. That Shaw makes such an invitation in each of his plays is very plain. The proof lies in the fact that they have As a matter of common knowledge caused the public to do more thinking than the dramas of any other contemporary dramatist with the sole exception of Ibsen. Pick up any of the literary monthlies and you will find a disquisition upon his technique. Glance through the dramatic column of your favorite newspaper and you will find some reference to his plays. Go to your woman's club, O gentle reader, and you will hear your neighbour, Mrs McGuinness, deliver her views upon Candida. Pass among any collection of human beings accustomed to even rudimentary mental activity, and you will hear some mention, direct or indirect, as some opinion original or crouped, of or about the wild Irishman, All of this presupposes thinking, somewhere and by somebody. Mrs. McGuinness's analysis of Candida's soul may be plagiarized and in error, but it takes thinking to make errors, and the existence of a plagiarist always proves the existence of a plagiary. Even the writers of reviews in the literary monthlies and the press agents who provide discourses upon, you can never tell, for the provincial dailies are thinkers, strange as the idea, at first sight, may seem, and so we may take it for granted that Shaw tries to make us think, and that he succeeds. My task, said Joseph Conrad, the other day, in discussing the aims of the novelist, is by the power of the written word to make you hear, to make you feel. It is before all to make you see, that and no more. All that I have composed, said Hendrik Ibsen, in an address to the Ladies' Club of Christiania, has not proceeded from a conscious tendency I have been more the poet and less the social philosopher than has been believed not alone those who write but also those who read, compose and very often they are more full of poetry than the poet himself The poet, said Schopenhauer brings pictures of life and human character and situations before the imagination sets everything in motion and leaves it to everyone to think into these pictures as much as his intellectual power will find for him therein. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this story. If you're not quite tired yet, you're always welcome to listen to another story. In the meantime, and until next time, good night.